Radio Krikon. Hello and welcome to episode 22 of Get Your Creek On, a podcast about Jonathan Creek. Thanks for joining me today for the fourth episode of series four, The Seer of the Sands. When a sceptic of paranormal stuff gets drunk, crashes his boat and drowns in the sea, it raises the eyebrows of the lover who'd just given him some very good news. Things get even weirder when a completely impossible message is found in a bottle, so it's just as well old jaunty creaks on hand to explain all. Watching the episode before listening to this occurrence of the pod is a logical, sensible and very worthwhile idea. If you're listening in having not seen it beforehand, then you are, frankly, a gimp. No creak, you freak, baby. The Seer of the Sands aired on February 14th, 2004, Valentine's Day. And if you're anything like me, then your idea of romance may include the image of a hunky Australian man. Here's one now. Episode Synopsis We start on a coastal beach this week, which is a very common type of beach, as it happens. In a nearby house where all sorts of historical paraphernalia and posters are on the wall, we learn that it belongs to Justin Mallory, the ghost hunter, who appears to be some kind of paranormal truth seeker. He's dozing on the bed and it appears that we're about to witness him being sedated via the old chloroform and cloth trick, but it's actually just his butler, Mickey, doing some cleaning. Later on, Justin wakes up and puts on some jazz music. He steps over to his fax machine, which is pumping out a message, and he's absolutely horrified by what it reads. He immediately reaches for the booze cupboard, takes a bottle of brand new bourbon out of it, chugs most of it down, and then recklessly heads off to the beach for a spin in his speedboat. He passes out at the wheel, crashes into some rocks, and is thrown into the wavy tide. Justin's body is found a bit later by Ashley, his PA, who is out jogging on the beach. She rushes to the house to tell Mickey, who's found the crumpled up fax and empty bourbon bottle. They run back down to the beach where the smashed boat remains on the rocks, but Justin's body seems to have been swept out to sea. In London, Adam Klaus is filming a street magic scene where he manages to predict the number between 1 and 50 that members of the public randomly guess. We see him unsuccessfully perform this umpteen times before finally getting it right as Jonathan watches on. Later, Adam is meeting with a diversity officer to discuss how his staff can become more varied and inclusive. Luckily, Jonathan happens to be sitting in a wheelchair to take a phone call, and Adam uses this as an example of how he gives opportunities to disabled people. Jonathan and Adam subsequently discuss the issues they're having with getting permission to use a live python in the stage show. Back down on the coast, an American woman called Geraldine turns up at Justin Mallory's house and informs Mickey that she was Justin's secret lover. She mentions how her husband, a US congressman, had been denying her the divorce that would allow her to publicly be with Justin. 
She's confused because the morning he died, she'd sent him a fax with the good news that her spouse was now ready to go through with the annulment, and yet Justin appears to have taken it extremely badly, which led to him accidentally killing himself by driving his boat when absolutely fucked up on hard liquor. Geraldine mentions that Justin had been so desperate to believe in some kind of afterlife or spirit world that she wouldn't be surprised if he were to give her some kind of indication of its existence. Meanwhile, in an editing suite putting together the street magic show, Adam receives a call saying that his new bodyguard has arrived. Carla turns up and asks Jonathan if he fancies a coffee. Downstairs, Adam finds that Joseph, his new bodyguard, is a dwarf forward slash midget, I can never remember which of those is the okay one to say these days, and that he's also, unfortunately, a bit of a dickhead. Joseph aggressively waves a gun around and then fires it into the air after frisking both Jonathan and Carla. Back at the beach, Geraldine sets down a towel and relaxes at her favourite spot. She's doing a crossword in the newspaper when a strange gypsy-like woman turns up and starts talking gibberish about how she senses that there is sadness at this spot for Geraldine. She then claims to be getting a message from beyond, from Justin, who apparently says Geraldine can ask him precisely five questions. She does so. How are you? Where are you? How did you die? Do you still love me? And the clue to 17 across in the crossword. The gypsy says that the answers have already been answered and that they're beneath Geraldine in the sand. She scuttles off and Geraldine digs into the beach below her, finding a bourbon bottle with a note in it that has all the answers to the five questions she's just asked. How queer. She shows it to Mickey, who's sceptical but can't explain it. Elsewhere, Carla meets up with Brendan. She seems a bit irritated that he doesn't appear bothered by the fact she and Jonathan were previously intimate together. He talks about how it's fine because their marriage is strong and then he blurts out that he was once married to an American entertainer called Marvin Turtlebaum, something Carla was not hitherto aware of. As she storms out, Jonathan turns up and appears to persuade her to take her mind off things by helping him with the Justin Mallory mystery, which he's just taken a phone call about. They discuss who Justin Mallory was and what he did during his life. At the beach house, Jonathan inspects the note and says that it was definitely a trick of some kind, and the question is why it's been carried out. Ashley's there and talks about finding the body and how she knew beyond doubt that Justin was definitely dead, because she's from a family of undertakers. As they're all discussing it, the gypsy woman returns and starts talking more otherworldly mumbo-jumbo to Geraldine. Jonathan and Carla go to spy on the discussion, but as they're hiding in a shed, some kind of adhesive drips down from a shelf onto their hair. The gypsy woman says that Justin's spirit is still strongly present, and that he's urging Geraldine to journey to a place of angels, where the man of peace must triumph over the man of war. Geraldine mentions that she and Justin had a secret code word that they'd chosen via Justin sticking a pin into a dictionary. Surprisingly enough though, the gypsy woman can't tell what the word is, and diverts attention away with a weird display of screaming and apoplexy. They leave, and Jonathan and Carla attempt to follow, but their hair has been stuck together, and he ends up having to carry her. They eventually find the gypsy woman at her caravan at a campsite, where she's joined by a man whom Jonathan appears to recognise. 
At the house that night, Jonathan, Carla, Geraldine and Mickey eat together, with Mickey preparing enough pasta to feed the number of men who've been intimate with your mum, i.e. loads and loads and loads. They discuss the gypsy lady and her potential agenda. Later on, Mickey mentions to Jonathan that the place is constantly plagued by harvest flies, and then Jonathan remarks on a photo of El Capitan that Justin kept by his bed. Mickey responds by saying that there's a mysterious smear on the glass that always kept reappearing, no matter how often he cleaned it. At the beach the next morning, Jonathan and Carla inspect the spot where Geraldine's message in a bottle mystery took place. Carla looks in some nearby huts and has an unfortunate contretemps with a crab. She mentions a loose floorboard in the hut nearest the spot where Geraldine was sat. In the distance, they see dark smoke billowing into the sky and they head off in that direction to investigate. En route, Jonathan explains how the trick with the bottle was done. The empty bottle was planted beneath the sand at the spot where the gypsy couple knew Geraldine always sat and they stuck a hosepipe into it. This ran to the nearby hut where the male accomplice sat listening to Geraldine's questions via a hidden microphone. He wrote the answers down, pushed them through the hosepipe with a catheter-like device and into the bottle. They get to the campsite and find that the gypsy caravan has been burned out and there's a skeleton of a trapped person inside at the window. Back at the studio, Joseph is drinking on the job to Adam's chagrin. He passes out and is led to sleep it off on a pile of sacks. Jonathan finds details online of the man from the gypsy site whom he recognised. He's Leo Jorgensen, one of America's leading mentalists, who's known to have connections to crime of some kind. Jonathan believes that he and the gypsy woman have achieved their objective, but won't know for sure until he gets a reply to his email. At the studio, the python being used in the show has escaped from its cage and staff are attempting to track it down. Unfortunately, it has eaten poor old Joseph whole, which is not going to help Adam's romantic pursuance of Felicia, the diversity and equalities person. At the beach house, Jonathan receives an important email. Down in the kitchen, Geraldine's astonished to find the word scarab, her and Justin's secret code word, spelled out in coffee grinds at the bottom of her cup. However, it turns out that Jonathan planted it there. He spent half the previous night going through Justin's copy of the dictionary, feeling for a pinhole where he'd apparently literally stuck a pin into that dictionary to choose the code word. God, that's just crazy. It does, however, prove how something that appears a miracle can quickly become mundane. It shows that Geraldine has been manipulated by the gypsy people because they've made her hang on to Justin's every word from beyond the grave. At her work, she's in charge of awarding a contract between two bidding companies, and she has been swayed by the supposed messages from Justin. It turns out the email from America was from Maddie, and Carla asks Jonathan a bit about her. Jonathan looks at a painting on the wall and works out an explanation for the reappearing smear on the picture by Justin's bed. The photo of El Capitan hid a photograph of Justine and Geraldine which he kissed and then hid every night. But why hide the photo during the daytime? Jonathan figures that it must be so that Ashley wouldn't find out about Geraldine, because she was also in love with Justin. Geraldine overhears this and drives off to Ashley's house. Jonathan, Carla and Mickey race after her. 
In Ashley's garden, we find that she has preserved Justin's corpse using her family business expertise and, probably due to being completely unhinged, is keeping him in a wheelchair at her house. Geraldine confronts Ashley, who is sitting there with the corpse and, unsurprisingly, goes mad, accusing her of murder. Upon arriving, Jonathan explains that Ashley did not commit homicide and, in fact, Justin was killed by a harvest fly. When Geraldine's fax arrived and he read it, a fly landed in just the wrong place at the wrong time and looked for all intents and purposes like a comma. This changed the meaning of the message from no one would have to suffer much longer to no, one would have to suffer much longer. Justin therefore took it to mean that no divorce would be forthcoming and he could not be with Geraldine. He drowned his sorrows and then, accidentally, himself. We end with Jonathan and Carla out on the sea together in a rowing boat. He mentions how Adam's now in trouble with activists working on behalf of vertically challenged people and then inquires as to whether she's willing to forgive Brendan for keeping his previous marriage to a man a secret. It appears that the two of them might be about to kiss, but then Brendan appears on the surface in scuba diving gear to interrupt the moment. Episode Analysis Now, of course, Jonathan Creek is a fictional show and a form of entertaining entertainment, but there's usually a grounded reality to most of what happens. However, the explanations to a couple of things in this episode do, it has to be said, stretch credulity to levels we perhaps haven't experienced thus far in the run. The harvest fly landing on the facts in just the right place to look like a comma is not beyond the realms of possibility, but certainly does push the boundaries of it somewhat. Justin Mallory would surely have reread the thing at least once, and the fly would have doubtless moved during that period. And wouldn't he wonder why the hell she was referring to herself as one in the facts as well? And wouldn't he also be flummoxed as to why the hell she was faxing him? This was 2004. Mobile phones were all the rage by that point, and a high-ranking businesswoman such as Geraldine would almost certainly have had one. And even if he didn't have one to receive a text message on, she would have emailed him, surely. We see that his house has the internet connection. It just doesn't ring true. If you think through the mechanics of the note in the bottle trick, then again, you can say that it's not entirely unworkable, but in the real world there would have no doubt been a jam of some kind, or the paper would have got stuck and torn. Geraldine just happened to sit in exactly the same spot every time she was on that beach. Didn't that work out well? And I can't help but feel that a bright woman like her would have come up with better questions than how did you die when she knows fine well that he fell victim to the old drinking four-fifths of a bottle of bourbon and then drowning after ill-advisedly taking your speedboat out for a spin thing. I'm not even going to go into the sticking of a pin into the dictionary. Every element of that was just ludicrous beyond belief, so let's move on. Geraldine mentioned at one point that Justin was desperate to believe in some kind of afterlife, and she herself seemed to be as well. But to me, it doesn't really tally with the fact that his career was based around disproving weird stuff like ghosts and whatnot. Look, I realise I'm criticising and questioning a lot here, and here's one final bit. 
In the boat shed, when Man of War and Man of Peace are mentioned, Geraldine said, ah, so Pacific must prevail, which would have made her twig onto the whole thing about the two companies making tender bids to her employer. Yet, when Jonathan explains all at the end of the episode, it appears that she's shocked and has a massive realisation. It's very odd. There were definitely some redeeming features to the episode though, and overall it was very enjoyable. The locations, for a start, were very different to everything we've seen before, see next section, and as normal there was some real highlights when Brendan was involved. The revealing of his previous marriage and Carla's reaction to it was tremendously funny, and then his popping up at the end in the scuba diving gear was humorous as well. The Adam Kloist storyline was also fun, I thought. I always enjoy scenarios where he shows absolutely no compunction in lying to people or saying stuff purely for his own benefit, and the area of diversity and inclusion is one where no doubt he couldn't care less, but was prepared to look like he did because it offered the chance of interacting with a pretty lady. Gary Cady played Justin, Jonathan Kidd was Mickey, Lorelai King was Geraldine, Catherine Kuzak was Ashley, Eve Polycarpu was the Gypsy Woman, and Felicia was played by Nicola Hughes. I was going to make a comment about wondering whether the small actor who played Joseph was the same guy who played Raymond in Satan's Chimney, but it might be seen as insensitive, so I won't. And also, it wasn't him, it turns out. The scene in the garden where Ashley was picnicking with Justin's corpse was really well executed, I thought, and whilst the music on the face of it may have seemed incongruous, it actually worked really well. I don't know if it was a mannequin they used or the actual actor in the wheelchair, but it was very impressive either way. Who knows where that house and garden actually are? I certainly don't, but here are some details about other places we saw in the episode. The Celebration of Location Information Station The sands on which much of the action took place this week is Mothcombe Beach on the Fleet Estate in South Devon, quite near Plymouth. It's open to the public all year round, although please note that dogs are only welcome between the 1st of May and the 30th of September. There are nice walled gardens to wander around and several holiday cottages to rent if you wish. The film Sense and Sensibility was also shot on the Fleet Estate, as have been episodes of Poirot and The Coroner. I know what you're asking yourself, and to answer your question, the beach is not actually all that close to the other famous South Coast location mentioned here before, Rincey Head, aka Jack Holiday's house, from way back in episode 2, Jack in the Box. It's actually a good 88 miles away, so just remember to leave at least two and a half hours of driving time between them on that particular day of your round-the-country tour of creek locations. We see a few scenes shot at Pinewood Studios this week, notably the one where Joseph pulls out the gun in front of the tour group, and another outdoor scene we saw was at the start of the episode when Adam was, inverted commas, performing out on the street. This took place on Northcote Road, just round the corner from Clapham Common in London. At the start of it, we see him passing an Italian restaurant on the junction with Mallinson Road, and these days it's an ice cream shop called O'Donnell's. 
They have several stores across London and their website boasts of numerous ice cream awards that they have won, some as recently as 2010. Wowzers! Creek Connections At 14 minutes 44 seconds, we see that the part of Pinewood Studios at which Adam first encounters Joseph is called Main Road. Main Road was the name of the previous stadium of Premiership Football Club Manchester City. The first match there took place on August 25th 1923, the day before exiled politician Reiko Daskalov was shot dead in Prague by an agent of Bulgarian terrorist group Internal Macedonian Revolutionary Organisation, or IMRO. One of IMRO's founders was Dami Gruev, a Bulgarian teacher who has a cove named after him on Greenwich Island in Antarctica. The longest river in Antarctica, the Onyx, stretches for a mere 20 miles and is home to no fish, although certain types of micro-animals live there, including nematodes, tardigrades and rotifers. Rotifers were first described in 1696 by scientist Reverend John Harris, best known as editor of the first ever English encyclopedia in 1707. Encyclopedia also happens to be the name of the third album by American indie rock band The Drums. Former The Drums guitar player Adam Kessler is no relation at all to fellow guitar player Daniel Kessler of the band Interpol, named after the organisation Interpol, whose Secretary General is the former deputy head of Germany's Federal Criminal Police Office, Jürgen Stock. Jürgen Stock attended the University of Giessen in the German town of Giessen, which is twinned with the English city of Winchester. The character of Ed Winchester in The Fast Show was played by actor Jeff Harding, whose long filmography also includes a role in the 1985 film Spies Like Us, starring Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd. The minor role of WAMP technician in that film was portrayed by Stuart Milligan, best known as Adam Klaus in Jonathan Creek. Breathtaking, astonishing, thrilling, and all real. It's just wow. Another Creek connection next time. Relaxation time. Tranquil, dreamy serenity. With all the heinous things going on that make life so difficult to navigate, it's more vital than ever to disengage from the madness sometimes. 
forget meditation, which is a con and does not work. What you need is to gently engross your senses deeply into some autonomous sensory meridian response. Auditory ecstasy is within your grasp by paying heed to non-cacophonous whispered sounds within a gentle soundscape curated with a Jonathan Creek themed uh, theme. Let go of the past. Don't worry about the future. Immerse yourself in the now. Geraldine mentions firing off a quick one-line fax to Justin, but it was actually about four lines long. This makes even more of a mockery of our decision to use this form of communication in the first place. Rewind to the analysis section for more analysis of that. Justin would surely have just waited to talk it through later that night when Geraldine phoned, rather than immediately drinking a shitload of bourbon. That was, shall we say, something of an overreaction. Didn't he have any work on that day to occupy himself in the meantime? Why did Justin go to the trouble of slipping a photo of 914 meter tall granite monolith El Capitan into the picture frame every day? He could have just hidden the frame in a drawer or something. If he was afraid of Ashley seeing it, then he should have just told the nosy bitch to stay out of his bedroom. Jonathan Kitt, who played Mickey as an accomplished and experienced voice actor. Amongst his credits is 2003 video game Ghost Hunter. That was only a year before this episode. He must have been bloody sick of Ghost Hunters and the like by that point, am I right? The actor who plays Leo Jorgensen looks a bit like a man who owned a restaurant near me when I was growing up. Can you believe that? Small world. When Joseph is left to sleep off the booze on that pile of sacks, he has his boots on. Later, once he's been eaten by the python, the boots are lying as if he'd taken them off. Continuity blunder there. Unless the, the snake took them off him somehow, which is impossible. So yeah, a bit of an embarrassing mistake for the BBC to swallow. If you'll pardon my phrasing. Gary Kitty must have thought he'd hit the jackpot when he was cast in Jonathan Creek, and yet he didn't actually end up having any lines whatsoever. All he got to do was pretend to read a fax angrily, pretend to drink bourbon and then crash a speedboat, and then sit in a wheelchair pretending to be a corpse. Jesus Christ, what an anticlimax that must have been. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Get Your Creek On, which takes us well into the second half of Series 4. If you've been enjoying the show, then why not leave a glowing review on your podcast provider of choice if it has such functionality? This'll really help to further increase the algorithmical reach of the pod and enable others to find and enjoy it. And remember, also hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. 
I don't mean to sound threatening, but just just bloody do it, please. Thanks. You can contact the show by emailing getyourcreekon at gmail.com, by Twitter, it's at creekget, or by heading to the website, which is getyourcreekon.co.uk. The next episode will be the checkered box in which a crooked cop looks like he's about to get his comeuppance and protests his innocence despite some very compromising photographs suggesting otherwise. Thanks again for tuning in today, that's everything for now and I will look forward to catching you next time for some more Get Your Creek On. I'm Toby, bye for now. Thanks for listening to Get Your Creek On. 